Hello and welcome to Foresight with me, Greg Williams. So I've got to be honest with you, when I'm contacted about another book on artificial intelligence, my heart can sometimes sink. It really is rare that a book about AI stands out from the crowd. But a few months ago, I received a copy of a new book on AI that really did feel like a fresh take on the subject. And its author is my guest today. He's an unusual tech executive. He didn't grow up in a big city and go to an elite school. He wasn't fast-tracked through MIT, Stanford or IIT or graduate from a fancy business school. Kevin Scott grew up in an economically challenged rural area of Virginia and spent Sundays listening to fire and brimstone preachers. His community was typical of many of the places across the world that have been disrupted by emerging technologies and changing economic conditions. Kevin went on to become one of the most successful technologists in the world. He's currently CTO of Microsoft, but his formative experiences have caused him to think carefully and deeply about the implications of AI on communities and how we can use the technology to create prosperity for all rather than a privileged few. He writes, There are two prevailing stories about AI. For low and middle skilled workers, we hear a grim tale of steadily increasing job destruction. For knowledge workers in the professional class, we hear an idyllic tale of enhanced productivity and convenience. At one extreme, we have a narrative imagining of a future where livelihoods and lives are at the mercy of inscrutable machines and the elite who control them. At the other is a vision of a world where jobs and income are no longer necessary, and we all retire to a nice beach somewhere and let the robots do all the work. But neither of these captures the whole story, which is, I would argue, a more nuanced, complicated and hopeful version of the future. I believe that we're in urgent need of a different story, a story of AI's potential to create abundance and opportunity for everyone and to help solve some of the world's most vexing problems. Kevin believes that a principled approach to AI should be put on the public agenda, along with climate change, health epidemics and public education. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great. Thanks, Kevin, so much for joining us today. Um, I'm so intrigued by your background and you what you reveal about how you grew up, because um, it's not usually the typical background for a, a technology executive. You know, you usually think about people going to Stanford or MIT or IIT, for that matter. Um, so mm-hmm. can you just start by giving us a little bit of background, talk us through how you grew up and, and, and how that's shaped you? Yeah, I grew up in rural central Virginia in the United States uh, in a part of the state of Virginia where the economy through most of the middle of the 20th century had been furniture manufacturing, tobacco, and uh, and like a little bit of textile manufacturing. And right around the time that I was born in the 70s, all three of those industries went into secular decline. Um and so, you know, it was a beautiful part of the country, but, uh, you know, it, it was also one with an economy where everyone sort of felt the pressure of, okay, everything is uh, coming a little bit unraveled. And my parents uh, and my grandparents and my great-grandparents had all been either in farming or uh, in in the case of my dad's side of the family were uh, construction workers. Uh, so my, my dad, my uh, paternal grandfather, and my uh, paternal great-grandfather all had been carpenters. Um, and 
I was the first person in my family who had gone to college. And so it was just a bunch of stuff to navigate. And I, I guess the big lucky break for me is um, the personal computing revolution was happening and in full flight, uh, you know, where it even reached my part of rural Virginia um, by the early 80s when I was uh, just sort of forming as a young person. And I was just super captivated immediately by that. Uh, and, and you know, the, the, I, I guess the, the single best thing that my family gave me was uh, uh, they nurtured curiosity and you just sort of saw folks around you all the time who were just sort of busy doing things. And so I, I just happened to have a pretty fortunate landing spot for my curiosity and busyness. <laughs> How did you first encounter computing? How did that happen? Um, video games, uh, honestly. So I was fascinated by these, uh, coin operated arcade machines that had started to show up everywhere. Um, so think space invaders and asteroids and then fancy video games like Pac-Man and Donkey Kong. And I, uh, I, I was just super curious and fascinated about how these things worked. And then, personal computers started to show up. So the, you know, the Commodore 64s, even the, you know, the, the less sophisticated machines in the Commodore 64s started showing up where they were in department stores attached to little, uh, you know, 13-inch CRT TVs. Uh, and you could just walk up to one and it had a basic prompt uh, usually loaded. Uh, you could just start typing code into the things. Uh and like I also knew that they you could play video games on them, which meant you could write video games on them. And so that was the thing that I wanted to figure out how to do. So the title of the book is Reprogramming the American Dream. Um, clearly, the American Dream, it's, it's a fairly broad idea. Many people have got you know very different perceptions of it. Uh, how do you think about it? How did you frame it for the purpose of the book? Yeah, one of the things that... Um... I talk about in the in the book, and this is sort of influenced by Robert Wright's brilliant book that he wrote uh, in the '90s called Non-Zero. Is that um, the the American dream in my nerdy brain is more uh, more about non-zero sum games that we can all play than anything else. So. When the American dream is working, like we and like and, and the American dream is sort of a metaphor. It's like a global dream, uh, I, I think, actually. Uh, and when it's working, like we all have a role to play, where we collectively are growing the size of the pie that is prosperity uh, and standard of living and uh you know quality of life and longevity and like all of these things that all of us uh intrinsically care about um and that all of our contributions ladder up in some way where everything is getting better for everyone um and so the the thing that's exciting to me um about technology in general and, and in particular about some of the things that are happening right now is I, I do think technology is the human race's primary instrument by which you go create non-zero-sum games where you you can 
um, expand the you know the beneficial conditions under which we all live for the betterment of everyone uh, because otherwise like things tend to collapse into zero-sum games where you're not making any progress and then the the conversations that we all have and, and like we're having a lot of them right now are the contentious ones about hey we've, we we believe that we have finite resources and like the conversation is about how you allocate them uh, you know equitably and, and fairly to all of the folks who need them um, and, and those are important conversations, but what you really want to be having is those conversations plus the pool of resources should be expanding for everyone uh, at the same time. Sure. And I, I think that's, that's a great point to make, that idea of equity and the, the pool of resources expanding for everyone, the, you know, the, the zero sum not being something that is, you know, is, 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 that, that there is kind of a pursuit that for general, you know, health of society uh, that technology can drive. Um, I guess I'm interested in understanding um, uh, how you've observed maybe the opportunities that technology has afforded um, maybe people from where you're from, from the you know rural southeastern state to you know the more affluent parts of the country where people who are listening to the podcast are probably more familiar with, so the, the big coastal cities. Like, what, what's the difference there in terms of the way that you know tech has shaped people's lives? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a matter of density of opportunity. On, I mean, so the, the reason that I moved to the Silicon Valley uh, many, many years ago is because it, it's just an incredible place uh, to go do technical work. So you have lots and lots of choices. Um, and so, the, the, you know, it, it's one of the big differences between, uh, you know, a place like London or New York City or, you know, Seattle and the Puget Sound area and, you know, the Silicon Valley and the, the Bay Area in Northern California or like, you know, San Diego, if you're thinking about biotech, is like all of these places have just super high density. There's this really um, great uh, book whose t- title I'm spacing now um, um I, I think it's called the New Geography of uh, of Work uh, by an economist from uh, UC Berkeley that sort of describes uh, the network effects even of these uh, these places um, and so I think that's the primary differentiator. Um, the the thing that is really beneficial though, and like what's different now in uh, Campbell County, Virginia, where I grew up, uh, you know, then versus now, is that there are more and more opportunities now there than there were when I was a kid. So virtually the only choice that I had if I wanted to go work on the frontier of technology was sort of leave and go to some place where there was, you know, just high concentration of activity. And you can go to spot in rural central Virginia and – like all sorts of people are doing amazing thing, things, creating really interesting businesses using technological tools. I, I write about a couple of these in, in my book. Um, uh, you know, a good example is uh, there's a company that uh, one of my cousins and one of my childhood friends uh, work at that do uh, high-precision plastics machining, uh, and they are located in the building that used to be a textile mill and 
Um, the only reason this business exists in rural central Virginia is because of technology. They can use the internet to market their services to folks uh, all over the country and, and even uh, internationally. They can do all of their communication with their customers over the internet, uh, you know, email with Teams, with, you know, other video conferencing tools. Uh, so, like, you, you don't have to be geographically proximate in order to, you know, for them to work with their clients and for their clients to work with them. And then all of their equipment is CNC machines. Uh, so the only economic way that they can do the work that they're doing is with a high degree of automation. And so without the automation, like, the jobs wouldn't exist at all. Um, and so I see a bunch of this resurgence happening, and like the technology that they all are leveraging is getting better and better. So they're going to be, you're going to see more of these businesses come into existence, and and there are even proof points for like how this can drive a very large part of a country's economy. So if you look at Germany's Mittelstand, uh, like. You know they've they've sort of understood this decades longer than I think many of the other parts of the world where you can have these you know thriving businesses that are doing you know hundreds of millions of dollars a year in uh, in sales uh, that are manufacturing goods that everybody wants uh, across the world um, and that are good at that point like they don't need to scale to trillion dollar businesses in order for them to like be an important part of the economy, and there are lots of them. Sure. I mean, and, and also, I guess the, the Germans have still have a very kind of strong and robust sort of respect for the um, the idea of apprenticeships and uh, technical apprenticeships, which I think maybe, you know, so, so that some, con- some other countries um, maybe have, have lost along the way. Um, yeah. I'm really interested. So, so, so t- t- this idea of you know building sort of like meaningful businesses using technology uh, in you know rural parts of the country um, is the idea fundamentally. You know, when you look forward, that maybe you know the the the, the version of Kevin Scott uh, who's growing up in I don't know ten, fifteen, twenty years in in rural Virginia that she won't have to leave. Um, rural yeah. Virginia. She, she don't, won't have to go to the Valley or to Austin or to wherever. Um, she'll be able to sort of build that business, you know, in her own backyard, as it were. Yeah, I, I really, I, not only do I hope that's happening, I see it happening. Um, and, and I can tell you just from personal experience, I tried everything in my power not to leave. I went to I went. I got my bachelor's degree at a at a school that was very near my home. Uh, I chose the two places that I went to graduate school because they were within driving distance of my family home. And then, you know, I, I was around thirty years old before I made what for me was a wrenching decision to you know uproot myself and and go uh, you know go to some strange uh, you know place that had a pace of life that was very different than what I was used to. Um, and if I'd had the opportunities now t- today that, that you have, that you can, you know, you can go work for a Silicon Valley company remotely, uh, you can contribute, uh, you can show that you're a great engineer by, you know, participating in open source communities, like, you know, checking your code into GitHub, uh, you can get these jobs and work over teams, you can build businesses and like even get venture funding now uh if you uh like are in in these places like i I don't think i would have left 
Yeah, well, that, it's going to be interesting to see how that that, that plays out. Um, obviously, one one area that you write about a lot lot in the book is you know something that you work very closely on, and obviously Microsoft does in artificial intelligence. And you know, one of the big concerns that that you know is cited at the moment is that AI and automation are going to destroy, in particular, low and you know middle skilled jobs. The most obvious one being you know autonomous autonomous vehicles and and, and taxi drivers. Um, you're fairly optimistic, I think, in the book as, as to why this won't happen. Can you just kind of talk about that a little bit? Well, I, I think there are the sort of long term uh, economic trends. So you know when you go rewind all the way back to the industrial revolution, like you did have an enormous amount of labor force disruption that happened because of a bunch of technologies like the steam engine coming into place. And the people who benefited from the development of those technologies were folks who had a lot of capital who could afford to go deploy them in businesses that they were running, like, you know, factories making, you know, a variety of different goods. Uh, you know, if they could make the capital investments, they had a big competitive advantage over uh, over everyone else. Uh, and you also had a lot of the benefits flowing to experts, so folks who could design the machines and maintain them and operate them. Um, but, you know, you sort of fast forward 200 and, and something odd years in the future, and, like, nobody has a engine monopoly now. Uh, like, they're just sort of ubiquitous technological components that get embedded in everything. And so, you know, one of the questions I think we have to ask with things like AI that may be as disruptive or maybe more disruptive than uh, something like the, you know, the steam engine and the portfolio of technologies that precipitated the Industrial Revolution is like, how long is that period of disruption going to be until it normalizes? Um, so, so that's one thing I think we have to think very, very carefully about. And I'm... I'm, I'm <laughs> I'm actually um, really hopeful that we can make good decisions about that because I think for the particular jobs that you mentioned, uh, like folks in the transportation and logistics industries, uh, things are not moving as fast as everyone thought they were going to move. Um, yeah. um, one of the things, though, that is very different uh, where things are unfolding in a in a different way than people predicted is that where the AI is moving very, very fast is for uh, knowledge work and creativity. And you can sort of see it even in the last year of things. Like we we built this uh, product called GitHub Copilot that uh, is powered by a, a large model built by our partners at OpenAI. And we have 100,000 daily active users on the product right now, and the model writes 35% of the code that they're uh, checking in. Um, and so that is, you know, and, and it's going to get better. And so that that's just an extraordinary thing. When you go talk to folks who are using the product, like, they love it because the 35% of uh, the, the code output that it's automating wasn't the you know, the joyous part of their job. And then all of a sudden they can you know, get more done and like the tedious parts of what they were doing are just less present in their hour by hour work life. Um, and I think you're going to see that, you know, come to a lot of different things in knowledge work where all of a sudden we're going to have much more powerful tools than we've had 
even you know since the advent of the personal computer so so you write you know just just digging into that a little bit so you, you write that we need a a, you know, a print the word you use is principled approach to the development of, of, of AI yeah um I wonder if that leaves the door open for a little bit of ambiguity of an interpretation. Like, how, how would you, how do you think about principle? Yeah, I, I think there there are uh, there are a bunch of things that we are actively talking about, and there's a bunch of energy around on bias and fairness and safety and responsibility and. Um, you know, those conversations, no matter how heated they get, I think are like very good ones to be having. Uh, there is regulation that's coming. The regulation is uh, absolutely needed. The, the thing that I would love for us all to add to um, the conversations that we're having that are very thoughtful and good right now is like, how do we think about access to the technologies? Um, and so like the thing that I want us to make sure that we're encouraging is that the, the AI work that we're doing becomes a platform for other people to use, not a, a you know, an instrument that we big tech companies use uh, just for our own benefit, uh, you know, building our own products. Like I want other people to be able to take what we're doing and build their products with, uh, you know, with the infrastructure and platforms that we're building. Right, right. Well, well, just developing that a little bit, like if you were, I don't know, you were advising large, you know, enterprises or large, large organizations, how would you tell them to think about how they best prepare their workforces for the, for these kind of coming fairly sort of like fundamental sort of structural shifts in, uh, in knowledge work and um, the kind of work we're going to be doing in the future? Yeah, I, th I think the... The, the first thing that they should do is um, just make sure that they're getting familiar with what the what the tools are actually capable of. Uh, and it's a some of these things can be a little bit disconcerting. So right up until the point that we had GitHub Copilot and then even a little bit further uh, after we launched, uh, people were very incredulous that the tool could do what it was doing. Yeah, you just sort of look at it and it's just, hey, it's preposterous, like this can't be done. And like this is a thing that we often do with AI. We sort of uh, assume that things that are easy for us are going to be easy for the machine and things that are you know difficult for human beings are going to be difficult for the machine. Sometimes it's like quite quite the opposite. Like we, we have models that can write uh, you know, write a certain type of code and like help people be more productive as software developers, uh, but like our AIs also can't do you know mundane things like uh, imagining a robot that could uh, you know a button a single button on your shirt uh, is like just an insanely difficult thing to imagine. Um, and you could you could just spend an enormous amount of energy building a specialized thing to do that one task, and it wouldn't be good for much else. Um, and, and so, you know, I think people should just sort of step outside of their anthropomorphic biases about what uh, you know what intelligence is. It's almost unfortunate that we've chosen artificial intelligence as the name for these tools. Uh, um, yeah, we could. We could just as easily have called them, uh, you know, digital assistants or something else, and you know, it, it might have uh, might have <laughs> helped us not make you know some of these biased judgments about what they're going to be capable. Of. So, but like, 
you know, set aside your biases and and try to really uh, embrace what you're seeing because some of these things like Copilot and and you know things that are going to be able to basically bridge uh, your ability to express something you want done in natural language to the thing being done, uh, like that whole pattern of activity is going to explode. Uh, and so it's not going to be just like, hey, I describe in natural language some code I want written and the model writes it. It will be a lot of stuff uh, that you can express in natural language and then an AI system is going to be able to go do for you. And, and thinking about these kind of growth areas for, for, for jobs in the future, like where what are the areas, you know, if you were – you know, just starting out now, where would you be looking to to go and do, you know, meaningful work? What are going to be the most exciting areas that you see kind of really growing over the next sort of, you know, 10, 15 years? Yeah, I think the, the, the exciting thing is, so there's obviously going to be a whole bunch of interesting work to do building the actual system. So, uh, you know, the thing that no one should start believing is that all of a sudden, you know, computer science and software engineering and all of the skills that are required to build complicated uh, software systems are going to diminish some way or another. Like, I think they just continue to get more and more important. But, like, maybe the most exciting thing, though, is um, using these tools, we're going to be able to solve harder problems than we've ever been able to solve before in a whole variety of different fields. Uh, We will be able to use these tools to accelerate our ability to build or to create medicines for uh, for diseases, to you know get clinical trials to go faster, uh, so that we can respond more quickly to things like global upper respiratory pandemics. Uh, we will be able to use them to design better machines. Like I, I really do believe that we'll be able to use them to uh, address some of these really hard problems we've got in um, in climate change, and. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the thing that I would encourage everybody to do. Hard problems are always going to be hard. And so, you know, I, I would advise everyone, like if you're a kid right now, just like go look for hard problems and then uh, like just uh, be aware that you've got this uh, you know, AI Calvary like that is going to ride in to help you uh, solve the hard problems. We're, we're not going to get to this point where the AI like autonomously goes and solves all of these problems for us. Like that's just not a thing that's going to happen anytime in our lifetimes. Well, one of the hard problems I think that we face at the moment is, uh, is food production. And you, you have a really memorable, I think, section of the book called The Intelligent Farm. Um, and, you know, you write about the intersection of, you know, AI, farming, uh, rural development, which isn't the kind of like the usual thing that a lot of, you know, tech executives, uh, uh, you know, in the Puget Sound area are going to be writing about. And I was really intrigued to, to see that you took that you write that 2% of the US population is currently working on farms. And I'm sure that that's probably true of uh, most of, uh, you know, the developed world, certainly yep. to like Northern Europe. So, you know, there are big geopolitical challenges at, at the moment, clearly with, you know, what's happening in, in Ukraine. Um do you now think about technology in terms of 
you know, how we can ensure that there's food security, uh, not just for the US and for Europe, but also for for elsewhere. And, you know, elsewhere, you know, you just have to look at the amount of wheat that goes from Ukraine to, to Egypt or to, to Bangladesh. And, you know, th- there are potentially, you know, real challenges here. So with your kind of background in sort of, you know, the, the rural part of the country and, and, and in farming, like, h- how do you think about that? How can we ensure food security for people? Yeah, I, I think it, it is. Uh, it's a really interesting, multifaceted set of problems. So, with the technology that we have right now, I, I think we can do a much better job than we're doing, like forecasting uh, supply and demand, and like trying to get the logistics of you know moving production of calories uh, to the places where the calories need to be consumed in a more reliable way. Um, but if you go one step beyond that, I think you know the interesting things are the actual production of of food um itself so we you know, two two sort of interesting uh, interesting things there so one is you know in the industrialized world like the two percent number is probably consistent across like everybody who has a developed industrial economy um but you have parts of the world and they actually are the parts of the world that still have robust population growth uh where you have just a huge amount of your human creativity and IQ is sort of captured in subsistence farming. So, you know, just people are, uh, you know, they, they are growing food so they can survive and, like, maybe they sell a little bit uh, to other folks to have a little bit of income on top of that. Uh, yeah, when you can get from, you know, 70% of your population, uh, you know, in subsistence farming to, you know, you've got enough agricultural productivity where you can have a smaller percentage of population over time, like it really does transform your economy and it benefits us all because like we, yeah, you know, I mean, the other thing about the industrialized world that we don't talk about all that often is we are in uh, like a demographic inversion right now. Like we're, we, our populations will be declining. Uh, and so you just want places where the population is growing for them not to, not to be trapped in subsistence farming. So like that's one thing. And then the other thing is like just the mechanism by which food is produced. I think technology is going to change a lot. Um in, in the sense that the way that we are producing the surpluses of food that we have right now is through like large scale farming. So you just have huge amounts of land uh, that you are producing fairly monolithic crops on. Um, and I think technology can change that a lot where you can have uh, smaller farms producing more tailored crops where you're having to move less food around from one place or another and where you can even optimize around some of the shortcomings of your environment. Um, yeah, there are a bunch of like really interesting startups right now that are building warehouse farms where you can have a Mediterranean climate uh, like in, a, you know, in, in hospitable places or like not inhospitable, but like places that don't have Mediterranean climates uh, where yeah, just the absence of sunshine and moderate temperatures like really rate limits the the agricultural productivity of land. Uh, and I think there's a bunch of technological things that are going to come into place over the next decade or so that are going to dramatically change that calculus. 
Well, we're right up against time, Kevin. So I think that's a great optimistic note to, to end on. Thank you so much uh, for your time. The book is terrific. And I think it's a really fresh and optimistic and, and very original take kind of rooted in storytelling and, and a personal sort of uh, uh, personal experience. So, uh, you know, congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate uh, you having me on the show. Thank you, Kevin. Take care. If you're enjoying this series, please do give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us grow the wired community. Thank you so much.